Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. If you're a type A professional, the word surrender is probably not in your vocabulary. Instead, you probably prefer words like control or risk manage. But do we really want to use business terminology to describe how we live our lives? Today's guest, Cara Thomas, created Serenflippity, an experience to rekindle our sense of adventure and wonder. Cara spent seven years as an innovation consultant before she embarked on a sabbatical to Asia to call a giant timeout on her life. What started out as a simple game, flip a card to create spontaneity in a new city, grew into a life philosophy centered around human connection. As a fellow entrepreneur, Kara and I riff on the importance of continuous experimentation, how negative feelings can be a great source of resilience, and how following your passion is not advice for the faint-hearted. And for the first time, we give our listeners a specific experiment to get you guys out of your comfort zone. Today's episode is sponsored by Skillshare. When I left my corporate job to try my hand as an entrepreneur, I was truly jumping into the unknown. I knew nothing about blogging, podcasts, and digital marketing, and fumbled my way through learning how to build my own business. I wish in those early days that I had access to Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 16,000 classes in business, marketing, and more. I'm currently taking the Modern Marketing Workshop with Seth Godin and Simon Sinek's class on Presentation Essentials. Classes are completely flexible, great for the professional or freelancer looking to brand themselves and grow their business. And best of all, you get unlimited access to all of this for a low monthly price. Never pay per class again. Skillshare is giving the Rad Awakenings listeners a month of unlimited access, absolutely free. Go to Skillshare.com slash rad. That's Skillshare.com slash R-A-D to redeem your free month. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today's guest is Cara Thomas, joining us from Santa Monica, California. How are you? Hi, I'm well. I'm well. How are you doing? I'm envious of your guys' weather. What's it like out there today? It's pretty beautiful. I'm not going to lie. Sunny. It's probably about 78. It's a pretty good day to end the day at the beach. Well, like many of our listeners know, I'm in in the podcast studio, which is the sweaty closet. So, (laughs) A New York City sweaty closet in August. In August. And so maybe just starting up, you're from New York. Tell us a little bit about growing up in the city. Absolutely. So I grew up in New York City. I we actually moved there when I was five years old. So I was born in Australia. And I think my parents always say that I had circled the world five times before I was the age of five because my grandparents lived in the US. They were expats living in Australia. And so I think it sort of started a love of travel at a very young age and an odd affinity for airlines and airplanes. I love long haul flights. It's a weird fact about me. But grew up in New York City starting at age five and lived there for most of my life. I think my parents were also very adamant about the fact that I get out of New York City and to make sure that I experienced different cultures. I went to different places. I surrounded myself with people who 
were different than I was to make sure that I had a different perspective and as many different types of information as possible. And the biggest thing I can think of from growing up there is you're exposed to a lot at a young age and you're exposed to a lot of contrasts. And for me, I think there was a lot of seeing things that I didn't understand at a young age and asking a lot of questions about them. So I remember really, really being concerned about there was a guy in our neighborhood who was homeless and at a young age wanting to know why he didn't have a home and how I could help him and sort of bringing him leftovers from dinner and things like that. And things that I might not have been exposed to had I lived in the suburbs or lived in a different place. And I think there was that exposure to contrast and that you know, New York has such a fast paced energy and such an incredible energy. So I think that at a young age, it made me very passionate, very, I would say, a doer, if you will. And I just sort of have this tendency to jump into things wholeheartedly. And when you're in an environment where you're seeing the extremes of things, of studying medieval coats of armor, for example, in third grade, and you have the opportunity to do a field trip to the Met and to go see that, it really makes things real. And it makes, for me at least, made me feel like anything was possible. So I think it really inspired this belief that anything is possible if I put my mind to it. So you graduated from college and I was looking through your LinkedIn profile and realized that you had the coolest job for, I don't know, six or seven years. You were just labeled as inventor. <laughs> yes. That, that's always fun explaining to people. People are like, you're, you're an inventor? You're a scientist? What? What does that mean? It was definitely the coolest title. And so tell us a bit about how you got into inventing, where, where you were inventing, what you were inventing. Yeah, absolutely. So I got into inventing, I would say, you know, to go to our theme of serendipity in a very serendipitous way. So I had started out in the nonprofit world and I kind of thought I wanted to become a an ambassador and work in the foreign service and ended up moving I was living in Aspen, Colorado at that time and I ended up moving back to New York and was going through a career transition at 23 sort of thinking about what I wanted to do and I think one of the things that I do in my life now that I realized started probably around age 23 was treating my life as a series of experiments. And what I did was instead of doing the traditional job interviewing route and thinking about, you know, these are the companies I'm going to go interview, I'm going to send my resume out, I started to think about who would I interview to get inspiration around their career path? So I started to write down a list of interesting people. So people who were family friends, friends of friends, friends, parents, you know, people who had careers that, you know, I thought about, you know, when I'm 60, like that would be a cool place to end up. And I asked if I could take them to coffee for half an hour and interview them about what they did and where they got to where they are. And I did this with a friend. I actually had a buddy who was looking for a job at the same time. And we'd meet every Thursday and we'd talk about what we discovered that week. And by flipping the idea of interviewing and resumes and things like that to look at it 
almost as an insight experiment and as a way to get insight into, ooh, that sounds cool or that sounds interesting. I met someone who was a friend of a friend of my parents and she told me what she did. And what I heard, this might not be what she said, but basically what I heard. <laughs> You're 23, you know. I was 23. She's like, yeah, I go into people's homes. I understand their lives and ask them questions, figure out what they need. And then I work with big companies to help them develop ideas that meet those needs. And I was like, I want to do that. Like, that sounds amazing. I love talking to people and I love developing new ideas. So I ended up chatting with her. She suggested a few companies. I cold called one company, found the founder's email, emailed her. I remember meeting her for lunch at 4 p.m. She hadn't had lunch that day until about 4 p.m. And like running down the street after her through the rain as we go into this cafe to sit down. And I you know, brought my portfolio and all this stuff. And we just talked about innovation and branding and consulting. And she hired me. And that was my first job in brand and innovation consulting. And I remember at the time talking to people about it and people saying that I was going to pigeonhole myself, that I should do something a little bit more broad. So I had the opportunity to work at an amazing advertising agency as well. And that that would probably be the safer, easier path to kind of go through that because it's a known area. And I think innovation consulting at the time wasn't very mainstream, where now I think you're seeing a lot of corporations and a lot of different companies bring innovation into their corporate practice. And it's becoming sort of the buzzword. And really choosing to go down the path that was a little bit more unknown. So I started out there at a smaller company. And then I moved over to the company I was at for about seven years called What If. And I worked on everything from developing new products and brands and business models for Fortune 100 companies in every industry from diapers to cholesterol medication to cabinets to dentures. And I think what's amazing is when you start to innovate in different categories, you start to see connections across different things. For example, I was working with a a luxury hotel company, and then you start to see these insights from the pharmaceutical industry that could have some sort of seemingly unconnected relation, but then it unlocks an entire area of opportunity. So I think what I really loved about it was this opportunity to go into the unexpected and to treat every project like an adventure, you know, it was sort of an information gathering adventure of, ooh, like, what can I learn about the world of diapers and bedwetting, for example. And I found that the unsexier the area, the more interesting it often was. Was there one of those projects, if if you're allowed to talk about them, that like really stuck out to you as something that connected with you at a deeper level? Well, it's funny, we're talking about bedwetting, I guess. That was one that I think for me really boosted my sense of adventure. I mean, bedwetting and adventure don't seem like common bedmates, but... You wet your bed when you're starting an adventure, right? (laughs) Exactly, right? But I think what stuck out to me with that is that it was a really hard challenge. And you start to think about how do you get insights into a category that you have to learn from seven-year-olds. Seven-year-olds don't particularly want to talk about wetting their bed, which is a very sort of shameful thing for a lot of these kids we found. Moms have a really hard time talking about it. So what was really interesting for me and what I loved was the challenge of how do you connect with someone about such an emotional issue 
and do it in a way that feels safe for them and do it in a way that develops and leads to new ideas. So what we ended up doing was doing all of these creative exercises with moms and kids. So we invented these painting exercises and drawing exercises, and we really focused them on helping us come up with the solution instead of getting into the problem. But we'd have to be able to kind of connect the dots in between some of their insights. And we started to talk to people who were out of the the regular category of of bedwetting. So talking to experts in shame, for example, or in behavior change, or in getting into the world of laundry and what that looks like and how do molecules work when it comes to surfactants and things like that. So getting into places where we could create more dots to create more unexpected connections. Seven years you're in New York. I mean, I thought they were, you were going to say like, oh, I was just another flavor of management consultant. You know, you you had actually done a lot of that, like the cool job you're with winning innovation awards before innovation is even a sexy business. How do you kind of summarize those seven years of your life in New York? It's funny because when I think about when I left that company, I left with a lot of gratitude and a lot of, I feel like it was my foundation. I feel like I grew up there. I started at that company probably when I was 25 and worked there until I was, what, about 32 or so. And those are really formative years. I feel really lucky to have been in an environment where the norm was collaborating and the norm was about problem solving and being surrounded by the smartest people. I mean, just smart, funny I remember I would come home and every day I laughed at work. You know, we had so much fun and did really fantastic work. So I would say those years were really foundational years. And I remember someone who had worked at the company who had left had told me, he goes, because I was, you know, at a point where I was about going to move ahead. And he said, you know, learn everything you can and think about what you'd take forward with you into your business and what you leave behind. And I feel really lucky to have had so many models and so many people that gave great ideas and great foundations for me to be able to bring into serendipity. So I described it as a foundation. And everything you've described up until now sounds kind of like the job that people spend their whole lives searching for. I mean, laugh every day. Talk to anyone who's in, you know, finance or, or consulting. You don't hear that that often. But you went on another transition, which could you walk us through what that was and, and how it happened? Absolutely. So I had and I think, you know, it's there's the fun, there's the adventure, there are all of these things that come with innovation consulting. It's also really hard work. I lived on a plane for 10 years. And there were a lot of trade offs that when you live that lifestyle, like I think a lot of people in consulting or, you know, in corporate jobs will relate to is I had to sacrifice relationships with men, relationships with my friends, not being a part of the flow of friendships, for example, with something because I was always on a plane, you know, so there would be times where and I think one of the good things about that is I've learned how to feel comfortable anywhere I go, I know how to tap into a culture tap into a different place. But there can be that feeling of, I don't know what city I'm in. I'm in a faceless hotel, and I could be in Des Moines, or I could be in Seoul. 
So I think for me, that was that was hard. I started to feel disconnected. We hold ourselves to rigorous standards. And that can be really grating as well. So what started to happen for me was I had the opportunity to take a sabbatical. So there, there was a belief in the company I worked for that fresh ideas come from fresh people. And I think of, you know, after about six years of hitting the ground, being on a plane, you know, just 80 hours a week going after it, I had the opportunity to take a sabbatical to reset, get a little bit of fresh inspiration. And I decided to book a one-way ticket to India to start my 90 days and to do a solo adventure. And that was sort of the, the first inkling of the shift that I created into building Serenflippity. And I remember going on that trip and a family friend said to me before I went on the trip, he said, you know, if you take this trip, you're probably not going to get promoted and you're not going to be on the career track that you're currently on. And I was like, oh my God, no, you know, like world domination is my goal. I have to get promoted. And I remember sitting with that and thinking about it because he goes, you know, you're going to lose momentum and you are going to have a different experience. And I remember thinking, you know what, at this point, I'm willing to make that sacrifice because I really need to to reset. What did you think you needed to reset at the time? I think I, I needed to reset my attitude. So there was definitely a shift in terms of how I was working and how I was thinking. I was waking up with that. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but that mindset where you wake up and you just start thinking about all the emails on your phone and it feels like impending doom. And you're like, oh God. And I got into some really bad habits of being on email and working right until I went to bed, dreaming about Excel spreadsheets, which are you know very sexy, awesome dreams. <laughs> waking up with that feeling of, oh God, what's happened now? And so I think I needed to reset my attitude. I think I also felt like I needed a bit of inspiration and stimulus. So growing up in New York and living there, it feels to me at least like a very linear city. So if I think of like linear blocks, it feels like a very linear trajectory. And I needed something to shake up that mindset. And I needed something to get out of because I was going through sort of the same divots. And I think creating deeper paths, but it felt like I needed to get out of those to get a little bit more perspective. So I think there was a bit of burnout that was starting to happen. There was a desire and a need for a little bit more fresh stimulus because I find travel and just doing things that inspire a fresh perspective can lead you to see your current situation in an entirely different way. So I think that's where people will say, you know, where do you have your best ideas in the shower on a run, doing something where the brain is not actively working on the problem at hand. So I think I, I needed the equivalent of, you know, a cold shower for my soul. <laughs> I think we all need a cold shower for our soul. <laughs> And so you hop on this plane, nine, 90 days? 90 days. And what did you tell them? You're like, I'll see you in 90 days? Well, I knew I was coming back in 90 days. So I had 90 days to have this adventure. And for me, I knew I didn't just want to get on a plane and be a tourist and travel. I really wanted to have, I really wanted to bring in spontaneity. I wanted to bring in connection. I wanted to have experiences with people beyond the surface. So I started brainstorming all of these potential ideas. And my first idea was to play travel roulette to figure out, okay, can I get around the world ticket, find all the people I know in different 
corners of the world, pull their names out of a hat and go visit them. But, you know, for financial and logistical reasons, that that was not feasible at the time. So that was like the first idea. And I remember talking to a friend of mine about that. And she suggested instead, she goes, well, what if you have everyone you know from around the world give you different adventures and challenges to do while you travel? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I talked to someone else, had coffee with another friend that I work with. And he said, well, what if it's about getting challenges that evoke an emotion? So if you think about the people who are the happiest in the world, they feel the full range of emotions. So they feel gratitude. They feel joy. They also feel sadness. They feel really deeply And I think actually, like to your prior question too, I don't think I was feeling deeply. I think that I was numbing myself out in a lot of different ways, which didn't allow me to have a full experience of life. Like I was so focused on work. I was so focused on that linear mindset that I wasn't having a rich, vibrant, diverse experience. So at the time that really resonated with me. So those two things led me to send, I guess it was an email blast, a Facebook blast. I probably have it on my Facebook still, the original ask to ask people to write adventures for me to do while I traveled. And a friend of mine, I told her about this. She goes, Oh my God, let's create an email address. I will take care of the email address. You're not allowed to see any of the adventures and I'm going to write them into a deck of cards for you. So I actually have the deck of cards in front of me right now. I'll send you some photos of them. They're beautiful. I mean, she hand wrote all of them. And every day when I was traveling, I would flip a card. And I my job with with on my sabbatical was basically to do the card that I got and to write a blog post about it. And the blog was really meant to inspire people to do the same things back at home. So the three rules of the flips that people gave me were that it had to be something that inspired emotion. It had to be something that I could do anywhere in the world, partially because I didn't know where I'd be, but also because I wanted it to be something universal. So it wasn't just about me on a really cool vacation trip, taking selfies in front of sites, but I was sharing stories that people could then could say, Oh, you know what? I, I can do that too. I'm in New York city or I'm in Detroit or I'm on an airplane. Like these are things that I can also do. I wanted to inspire that connection and inspire other people to say yes to what was in front of them. And then finally, the last rule was that it couldn't get me arrested. So that was a very important rule working with people in innovation consulting. (laughs) And having very adventurous friends. Wow. I want to come back. You said the happiest people are those who experience the full range of emotions. I actually never heard that because like my my very linear self is like, well, if you don't experience sadness, then you're probably happier. But am I, I'm, I'm presumably thinking about it incorrectly. It's interesting because I was of the the same mindset when I think about emotional health in my life, I would love to feel happy, joyous and connected all the time, right? Like that's my MO. I want to feel good all the time. But my experience has been that when I feel those other things, it gives me a context to feel the happier things, if that makes sense. So if I'm able to embrace and feel and sit with sadness, then it also means that the joy is going to feel so much brighter and more vibrant in context to that. And I think there's also what I found in my journey of entrepreneurship. And I think from that sabbatical onwards and the things that have happened in my life is being able to find serenity and comfort in discomfort is one of the 
most powerful things that I'm learning to experience. And it's something that's, you know, a daily practice and learning to embrace those uncomfortable feelings or those feelings that we consider negative builds that resilience. And I think I've also found that with those things, they've become the foundation for my greatest connections. So I always remember, you know, I was going through a breakup when I was much younger and I was distraught. You know, I was just like, this is never going to end. My life is over. This is the most horrible thing ever. Never, ever wanting to feel that way again. And I remember someone saying to me, you know, if you get through this and you get to the other side, you're going to be able to help someone else going through the same thing. And sure enough, Six months later, I had a friend who was going through the exact same situation and had to move out of her apartment with her fiance. And I remember throwing out her wedding invitations and being able to be there for her in a way that I didn't have to say anything because I knew exactly how she felt and she knew that I'd been through it and I had, you know, experienced it. So I think there is something about rising from the ashes, you know, or being able to take those experiences that we perceive as negative, or we perceive as painful and turning them into catalysts for connection, or even our greatest assets. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll inject the male perspective in this. Is yeah, you're coming at it from a place of, if you let it rise up, greater things will happen. But then there's also kind of like the male perspective. I guess it's more male, which is the denial that they exist and the repression of them. Yeah. And then they rise up through like unintended consequences. And so, again, it shows the duality in that, right? It's like, do you repress it and then what bad things happen? Or do you let it out and what beautiful things happen? It's just like a really cool way to look at it. Not not necessarily gendered, but but an interesting way. I love that. And it's such a good reminder because my MO is at first to always con- try to control it, repress it, make it stop. And it's interesting because in the past few months, I would say a practice for me has really been about embracing and surrendering to all the feelings, you know, and the person who I was talking to about this, she had a sort of a similar construct that you're talking about a sort of the masculine way is control it, intellectualize it, you know, try to put it in a box using the word masculine sort of hypothetically and not male or female necessarily, but the more feminine way is about surrendering, embracing and feeling it. And it's scary. It's scary to feel something like that. But then at the same time, there it can be such a catalyst. Like if I think about anger, for example, like how could these things be used for good? You know, if it's anger or outrage, thinking about how have people channeled those feelings into something very constructive or very positive. Yeah, absolutely. What was the flip that evoked the most emotion? It's funny. It's a really simple one. And it's one that people really love. And it's something that I do in my daily life now is buying coffee for a stranger and asking them how they are and what makes them come alive. And for me, it's, it's an instant hit, you know, it's, it's an instant hit of connection and trust and that feeling of humanity. There's something really beautiful about it. It's really simple. And I did this actually a few weeks ago to someone I was I was in a bit of a grumpy mood in the morning. And it's actually the quickest way that I get myself out of 
feeling stressed out. If I go buy coffee in the morning, I'm like, all right, just buy coffee for the person behind you as well. And there's something about that connection with someone and that smile of like, oh my God, thank you so much. You know, that made my day. And just hearing someone say that made my day is an instant mood booster. And the person I did it for found the website, sent me an email through the website. And, you know, we chatted for a minute through email. And then a month later, on Monday, I run into her at a conference, you know, and it's just, it's funny how these things happen. So for me, that's one of the ones that keeps on giving. And I think it continues to evoke that emotion of, connection of humanity and also of trust because you never know what could happen or who you're buying coffee for what's going on for that person so that was a big one for me in terms of just an instant hit of positive vibes so i wanted to wait to bring this part into the podcast but this it's just too serendipitous to not bring it up (laughs) so i as part of my homework for this podcast you sent me the deck and I was pulling out the cards and there was just one card I did not want to get because I knew it was in there. And I was like, please, please. And I was going to, you know, I'm like disciplined enough that if I get it, I'm going to do it. And like, please, 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 not the one where you have to buy the person behind you coffee. No way. Everyone's always wants that card. I love that you didn't want it. That's so great. It scares the living shit out of me. And I've I've spoken in front of thousands of people. (laughs) I haven't made money in two years, but buying coffee to a stranger behind me, I have like chills now. So I want to like walk you through the story. So yeah, what's the fear about for you? Okay, so the the fear is the person's response and the unpredictability of it. I guess it says a lot about New York. It it like really scares me to do it in New York, and so so I'll walk you through it because it will make sense. So I'm like gathering my energy. I'm like I'm I'm gonna do this today. Like this was two days ago, and I walk in and I'm in Starbucks, and behind me there's kind of like a young kind of stylish twenty three year old woman. And I'm like, shit, I don't have my wedding ring. This woman's going to think I'm hitting on her. It's like the <laughs> last thing I want. And so like, okay, tomorrow I'll wear my wedding ring and I'm going to do it again. So there won't be that that thing. Go back the next day and the, everyone's on their phones. And, and it was one of these coffee shops where like, you, there's like a large distance between the cashier and then like the next person. So I'd have to like walk four feet and be like, excuse me, <laughs> can you please get off your phone because I want to buy you coffee? And so I like chickened out again. So I'm carrying this like like the cortisol is like running through my body. And then the third day, I was like, I'm going to get it today. And, and like the stars align. And like you said, the woman was like overjoyed. It, it's like she had just won the lottery. Like, like she was like hyperventilating in in like a positive way. And she asked me my name. It turns out she works like one floor above me. So I'm going to see her in the elevator. And we talked for 15 minutes or like 10 minutes while, while, while I was waiting for my coffee. And so I guess two things is the first thing that, that is like, I really felt it deeply. Like I've done some people think I'm crazy. Like I'm recording a podcast in my closet on a Thursday, but even then I've lost, I don't get that feeling of like, this is making me really uncomfortable. I get a little bit before every podcast because I don't want to screw it up. But that was like, on. I, I literally felt like I was a 22 year old shy guy, like going to ask a girl out and, and just like being so scared of rejection. And I could see this, like I asked the question, but this like range of emotion question, like I felt so alive, like once I did it, you know? And it was just really magical. And it it really informed me. It's like, 
I need more of that feeling in my life. Mm. I yeah. really do. Despite being an entrepreneur with like tons of shit going on, like I need more of that. And and I don't know exactly what that is. It's like that safe discomfort, spontaneity, serendipity. And so I thought it was just like, I really was like so excited to share that with you. And so I'm going to issue a, a challenge to our listeners that I want them all to buy coffee for the person behind them sometime this week because I promised, I mean, take it for, from Carr, but also take it from me. You're probably going to feel a little uncomfortable, but it really, really, it's going to trigger a feeling in you that you probably haven't felt in a long time. Yeah, it is a flip that scares me as well. And sometimes, maybe I shouldn't mention this since you've just issued a challenge, but if I'm feeling vulnerable about it and I don't want to do it, sometimes I'll have the barista double charge me if there's no one behind me in line and say, just buy it, you know, the next person who comes in who orders coffee, tell them, you know, it's on the house. But then the barista is always super excited. They're like, Oh my God, this is so cool. So there is, yeah, there's something about the connection it creates. And I remember someone, so we do these serendipity events as well. So we do these adventure brunches where we have, you know, 30, 40 people there and everyone gets a mission and they have to go out for 30 minutes into the streets of Venice or San Francisco and come back with a story and an artifact. And, you know, it's sort of like serendipity cards on steroids. And what's really interesting is I remember one guy saying, I can't remember what they had to do at the time. I think they had to create a moment of fun for someone new. And he got rejected a few times. And then he found someone who really appreciated it and had the they had a great connection. And his takeaway was people's reaction isn't about you, but it's a reflection of their inner state. So if there's someone who can't accept the coffee or is like, what are you doing? Like, what are you trying to sell me? And I've had that as a reaction too, where I bought these two guys coffee and they're like, are you trying to sell us something? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm just, I'm doing it. And it's part of a game I created. And I was oh, okay, you know, there's no ulterior motivation. Thanks, that's really nice of you. So they're sort of getting beyond the surface. And then also for me, it's been a lesson in, learning where I am and then learning where other people are too. And if someone can't accept it or gets mad, that's a reflection of, of where they are. And it's also, I think a big part of doing the original trip that led to these cards and sort of living a life where I play these cards almost every day. Still. Still. Yeah. I I did one yesterday. I bought, I bought flowers for a stranger at the farmer's market. Oh, that scares the shit out of me too. (laughs) Well, it was funny because going through, there's something about you intuitively know where to go, right? And there were f- I'm holding these two little bouquets of roses. And I'm like, okay, I have to give them to someone. And I'm sort of looking around. I'm like, you, eh, no, you walking too fast, you eh, kind of weird. But then I found there was this woman who had a cart, you know, and there was something about intuitively, I was like, I think she'll like them. So I went up to her and just said, listen, I'm doing this thing today where I buy something for myself and I buy a second thing to give away to someone new. And I'd love to give you these bouquet of these flowers if you'd like them. And she, she was over the moon, you know, she's like, this made my day. I can't believe you did that. That's so sweet. And we just had a mini moment and went on from there. And I think once for me, at least it's getting out of my own fear and getting back into that flow of how can I create a positive experience for someone else? And if I focus on that, 
it gets me back into a positive place. And there's also committing generous acts actually releases oxytocin, which makes you feel better. <laughs> like there's actually a scientific benefit on top of it all. Completely. Yeah. And I did it because I was, you know, I was kind of stressed out yesterday morning and I was texting with someone. She's like, well, why don't you flip a serendipity card? You did create a company that helps people do this. I was like, oh yeah, right. The cobbler always has the messiest shoes. So I was like, all right, I'm going to flip a card. And I'm going to do it. And I felt so much better. It shifted my mood. And I think there's a bigger principle that, you know, we get into at least for me, I get into work, I get into achieving, I get into that mindset, and I forget about the power of human connection. And that moment that you can have with someone new, and just that connection around generosity, humanity, and getting into that bigger feeling of, okay, this is a, a small problem in a bigger scheme of things. And there's a bigger flow to tap into. Yeah. And so let's rein it back into this sense of adventure. Obviously, I get, I'll get to the punchline, but the sabbatical turned into, a, I guess, resignation. The sabbatical turned into actually a move to Asia with oh, the company. Okay. So basically, the sabbatical, I was doing these cards, I was writing the blog, I was having these crazy experiences, and I met someone at the end of the trip who suggested that I turn it into a product. She actually didn't suggest I turn it into a product. She challenged me to turn it into a product. And if you give me a challenge, I obviously say yes. So <laughs> there, there's that going for me, which is nice. Yeah. And so I said, yes. I was like, all right, let's see what happens. And I kept it as a project for maybe a year and a half while I was working and consulting. So I ended up that sabbatical really just opened up this passion to travel and this desire to live somewhere new and a real, you know, I think what I started to realize was that I built a life because I grew up in New York. I, you know, while I was traveling a lot and I was doing different things, I built a life where I didn't have to confront things that I was scared of. So if I was scared of new people, I didn't have to confront that because I was surrounded by my friends all the time. So I had this opportunity to move to Asia. The company basically said, you know, we know you basically want to live in Bali and be there. We don't have an office in Bali, but we need someone in Singapore. And you've been doing a lot of work in Asia. And we know you've got a bit of wanderlust. How do you feel about moving to Singapore with the company? So I moved with them. And I spent a year living in Singapore. And while I was in Singapore working in innovation consulting, I worked on serendipity on nights and weekends, you know, and I just remember those, those early days of printing out the cards at like a Kinko's or something and hand cutting them and making them real and taking pieces of paper and gluing them together to make what I think a cool box would look like. I mean, it's just such a, you know, birthing an idea and starting it out and looking at all the possibilities is, is such a magical experience, you know? So full on side hustle while you've got the income and the health insurance and, and all that, what gave you the, the, the courage to, to pull the ripcord? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, this is sort of. You flipped a card. It said, quit your job today. <laughs> job and move. You know, it was a passion of mine for a long time. And it was a real burning desire inside. I was like, I want to start this company. I want 
like I just believe very, very deeply in the power of adventure and the power of little things that can get us out of our comfort zone to change our lives. So for me, it was like this deep burning mission inside of me. And I think when that happens and when, for me at least, when I've gotten in touch with that, mountains move, you know, and they don't always move in the way that you expect them to. But for me, what ended up happening is I was living in Singapore, working a ton, and my body kept breaking down. I kept getting sick. I was in and out of the hospital in Singapore. And I'm I'm a pretty hardy horse. You know, I'm not like a fragile flower. I traveled through India eating street food for six weeks and didn't get sick. And, you know, I'm living in one of the cleanest countries in the world and, you know, in and out of the hospital. So something was clearly going on. And, you know, I sort of had this burning passion inside to build this company wasn't really sure if living in Asia was the place for me. And I'd call it a breakthrough, I could call it a breakdown. But you know, a bunch of very serendipitous events transpired that I never would have written into my life story that basically gave me the opportunity to recalibrate myself from the inside out, you know, and to give me a chance to really think about what I was building, what I was doing, what was driving me to work to this point where my body was breaking down, which landed me back in the US. I had a doctor in Asia who said, you know, listen, I really, I think you need to go back to the US for a few months and take care of your body, get back on your feet health wise. And that led me to live in Los Angeles. Very oddly, I came here for a week. And now it's two and a half years later, and I'm still here. And it was just this very funny kind of one thing after another, leading very gradually to me sort of recalibrating things, really understanding and feeling like, okay, I need to be I need to be in the city right now. And I need to be back in, you know, a country where my parents are nearby, where I've got a really strong support system. And I think that gradually led me to make a decision based on my health and based on my well being to move here to resign from the company I had been working for that, you know, as I mentioned, I really felt like I grew up in and to part with gratitude. And, you know, I still, we partner together, you know, it's like the ex-boyfriend you're really good friends Mm -hmm. with. And that led me to start to build out Serendipity. And it started as a 90 day experiment. So I think, you know, the short, that's the kind of the long context answer to your question. And the short answer is it wasn't a decision to resign and start this business. Like it, it was a series of events that I think was based on sort of a passion and a desire and surrendering to that flow of what happened and then starting it as a 90 day experiment. So I started it as, okay, what, what would happen if I put my heart and soul into this for 90 days? And that's how the business started. So it wasn't, it wasn't a hard and fast decision. And your illness was the catalyst in that too? Yeah. Wow. It is not to get like spiritual and woo on our listeners, but you know, people like my coach talks about things like coming through you mm-hmm. and coming out of you. And usually they're, they're like good things that come out of you, but also like it makes sense, right? Illness is your body's rejecting something, right? And we just assume that it's like food or air or germs or something like that. But this kind of like, I haven't really like done a ton of work in it, but I believe it to its core is like this kind of mind-body 
relationship. And again, I don't come at it in like a super like new agey way, but it's like when my mind is healthier, my body's healthier. And when my body's healthier, my mind's healthier. And and when those two things are aligned, mount, like to use your fra- phrase, mountains move. And that's like, that is true. So you embark on a 90 day adventure. I embarked on a 90 day adventure. And were there parameters for it? In terms of building the business or for Serenflipity? In terms of like what you expected the milestone would be at day 90 to, to determine like what goes on after? Let me think back. I think it was understanding if there was a market for the cards, understanding, you know, if this was a real idea that could live, that could thrive, figuring out the kind of right manufacturing opportunity and building the right resources to bring that vision to life. I don't think I, I was, I wasn't super tangible around it. I mean, I think I had some pretty, you know, if I think about it, egregious high standards of what I want. I was like, oh yeah, I want like venture capital and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes we think we know what we want. And then other times, you know, other things come in. So for me, what happened was it was really everything that happened in those 90 days was the foundation of what started the business out. So if I look at, you know, um, there were different options of, you know, do I self-publish these cards? Do I kickstart the cards? Do I partner with a larger publisher to be able to build that scale in a different type of way? So I ended up, um, and those were all things that started to come in during those 90 days. And I started to meet publishers. You know, I actually ended up very serendipitously meeting the publisher that ended up publishing Serendipity in Jan- this January of this year during those first 90 days. So it's a really interesting, you know, for me, it was a lot about that focused intention and taking action towards those focused intentions. And, you know, it's funny, because during those 90 days, I was like, I want the cards to be an anthropology, and I want Chronicle Books to publish them. And Anthropology was the first store that picked them up. And, you know, after I think it was a year and a half or so of different experiences, I ended up partnering with them to launch the first deck of cards. I, I hear your story and I've met so many people where it, it, it like makes perfect sense that it would happen this way. The the messy chaos. But it's one of the and, and there are a lot of people who are feeling the way you felt when you were kind of on, on the last innings of your career in, in, in Singapore at the consulting firm. But if you had to distill it down to some advice or principles that someone can try to use as a true north that kind of got you there, can you even distill it down that way? It's a really interesting question in terms of getting from that transition to building the business. Yeah. And like taking the leap. The word that comes to me right now, and I'm not sure if it's going to make sense or not, is surrender. So I, as a type A New Yorker, feel like I have spent so much time trying to create and control and do all of these things, which I think is very valuable. And I think it's a, a great thing to be a doer and to create and to make things happen. But the moment I surrendered, the first moment was surrendering to the passion and accepting it and being like, I want to create this thing. You know, it seems irrational, but I'm just going to surrender to it and surrendering to the experiences. So if I think about those months where I was getting back on my feet health wise, 
I could look at them as a huge setback. I could look at them as, you know, this took me out of the race. This means X, Y, and Z. I put my life on hold for three months, whatever it was. Or I could look at it as a huge setup and think about this got a lot of things out of the way and made a lot of things happen that provided the right foundation for me to build the business. So I think like you were talking about before with illness, I don't think it's always just physical. I think there are other things going on and there was a lot of stuff I needed to to work through to be able to be an effective leader. So I would say principles for me, there's something about surrender. There's something about positive mindedness. So looking at what can the situation do for me? You know, believing that things are happening for me versus to me. And that's become a big practice for me around resilience of if I have a setback in the business or if I have something where I think, oh my God, we're we're done, it ends up becoming the biggest breakthrough. You know, so it's going from a breakdown to breakthrough mindset. And I think also that experimental mindset too of when I allow things to be an experiment and I allow myself to be playful with them and to have an adventure, it opens up the way that I see things. So things don't have to be as linear as as I plan them to be. And it changes my mindset so that I can start to make connections with different things. So if it's an experiment and if it's an adventure, then it's something that I'm, I'm more open to. I start seeing more dots. I start seeing more connections. So I'd say, yeah, surrender, positive mindedness and an experiment mindset. That's awesome. And I, I took one quote from one of your blog posts that said, following one's heart is not for the faint heart. <laughs> yeah. How do you reconcile? Or I guess in that, it's actually great advice because it's not prescriptive. It's it's not like like following one heart, one's heart is a bad idea or don't do it, but it, it is descriptive of the process. What does that quote mean to you? Because it means a shitload to me. <laughs> I'd love to hear what it means to you. I mean, for me, I think that when I wrote that, I was, I moved to LA probably about, I'd been there here for probably a year. I was very into sort of a, a yoga, a yoga vibe. And I think there's a lot that people talk about, you know, of just follow your heart and sort of these grand platitudes of inspiration. But it is not for the faint of heart. It is hard work. I think for me and my experience is if I'm following my passion and if I'm following my heart, it's a calling, right? And it requires diligence. It requires persistence. It requires showing up every day. It requires, you know, getting out of bed when I don't want to. It requires, for me, it's a holistic approach. So if I'm following my heart, there are other things that I need to do around it when it, when it comes to career or anything for me, because I think everything's connected. My romantic relationships, my health, my finances, my work, all of those things, I believe that they all need to be healthy and in order. So, you know, following my heart, it might mean waking up at 5am and working out because I know it's or meditating or whatever that practice is for me at the time, and doing it because it's going to lead me more to being able to do those actions around, you know, following that larger passion. And I think, for me, there's been a really interesting practice that I've had to follow that when there's something about following my heart when it becomes connected to you and it becomes connected to the ego and it becomes connected to my personality. There can be something that's very constrictive about it. So I've almost had to treat 
serendipity as a separate being, you know, I almost imagine as a person or something that wants to emerge with its own personality, its own way of being. But when I connect it too closely to myself, my self-worth will go up and down like a stock ticker based on how I think the business is doing. So there's been, you know, a lot of practices and a lot of things that I explore around how do I follow my heart, but still be myself and be Cara also build a business, which is a separate entity and and sort of connect those. And the control element too, right? Yeah. I love that concept of of making it outside of your identity. And I have not done that with with rad reads because it it feels there there is the ego part of it where it's like I've built this, you know, like this is this is my baby. This is me. And then there's like the different control fears and and things like that. But that's that's actually one of the many things I'll take away from this conversation is that when you create something that it has to exist outside of you or else it's just a manifestation of yourself. And yes, you bring the beauty into it, but you also bring a lot of the issues with it. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I guess I think a lot about serving the business and that's really helped me to think about how can I be useful to this business? How can I be useful to this mission or thing that wants to exist? Because I will make decisions based on ego or based on fear or based on, oh my God, you know, I need to do this to validate myself or whatever it is, those human things that we have and being able to think about, okay, well, who is this as a person and where does it want to go also brings in a mindset of adventure and experimentation. It's sort of like you've got a block of clay and being a sculptor and you're sort of sculpting it out and thinking about what is this what does this big block want to be? You know, does it want to be a Rodin sculpture type of thing or does it want to be something else? So you sort of get to know it and connect with it and serve it. Yeah. I, I've been reading Shogun and I didn't realize that the word samurai has the root serve in it, which I just found interesting in the whole like culture of respect and and anyway, random T I L. So tell us about Serenflippity today. How can our listeners go learn more about it? And you've planted the kernel and I'm gonna say it on here. It's like there's we're going to find a way to create some kind of joint event because it's, it's just, it's just, it's so right. We totally have to. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited. Um, yeah. So Serenflippity, there's more information on serenflippity.com and our first product is out in the market. So it's a deck of everyday adventure cards and we are growing. We're going to launch three new editions for early next year. So more specific verticals um, around bringing adventure into relationships, into family, into meeting people, and a few other things. So I'm excited about that. We're also building out an app right now, which is really exciting. So we're in the first steps of thinking about how do we take this principle of adventure and connection and serendipity and spontaneity and turn it into something that, you know, can allow your phone to be a catalyst for in real life connections and in real life experiences. So that's something we're starting to build. And we have a series of events that are also growing these adventure brunches that happen right now in Los Angeles and San Francisco. We're coming to New York and that will be really fun. And yeah, the business is exciting and growing. And I think what's out there right now is just a a small facet of some of the bigger things that will be hitting the market in the next year or so. 
Awesome. And um, well, well, I cannot wait for the New York edition, but we're, we're definitely going to we're going to collaborate on this. I'm this so excited. I can't wait. Last question. I, I've seen you reference The Little Prince uh, a I bunch of times. I love The Little Prince. And it kind of reminded me that I hadn't read it in many, many years. I did not find the time to read it before this. But give our listeners one reason why they should go pick up their old uh, uh, beat-up copy of The Little Prince and crack it open. Oh, my goodness. It makes me want to do that right now. My copy is actually a copy that someone gave to me when I was a baby and has a beautiful... I wish I could read the inscription in it. The The writing is very hard to read, but it was this beautiful letter from a friend of my parents about why she loved the book. And for me, it's all about inspiration and wonder and just the power of the power of our minds um, and the power to see things in different ways and that beauty of connection. So for me, I find it you know, such a grounding and inspiring book um, and one that, you know, I think I could just open it to any page and there would just be a little quip or a quote that, um, you know, would sort of get me in the right mindset. Beautiful. Well, Cara, thank you so much. Thank you for helping me rekindle my sense of adventure. Thank you for getting our listeners. Thank you to all the people behind our listeners when they get their coffees tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm really, I'm just really excited to continue to see this, uh, see this, this grow and explode. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.